0: you and sing together, uh, recite scripture together, pray together, and now hear the Word of God together. If you would, take your Bibles, as Richie said, to Luke, open them to Luke chapter 10 if you have a copy of God's Word, make it easier to follow along. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Of course, we are in a, a more long series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, that we've been in for some time. And we continue that. We've just been walking verse by verse through this gospel, taking each section as it comes. And we find ourselves here at the conclusion of Luke 10. And the title of this sermon is Priorities. Priorities. And I think you'll see why that is as we read the text. So follow along as I read from Luke 10 verses 38 to 42. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the living God. Amen. George Mueller lived from 1805 to 1898. He spent most of his life in Bristol, England, where he pastored a church for over 65 years. I don't know how many of you will be here if I pastor this church for 65 years, but <laughs> uh, he's also really well known for his orphanage work uh, and also his prayer life, his devotional life. He kept a journal of just, prayers that he was asking of the Lord. And then he recorded answers to those prayers. And he just had so many of them. Uh, Just an incredible uh, devotional life example. And yet he was a very busy man. And in all that, he prioritized time with the Lord that was rich and deep, as well as uh, time uh, talking to the Lord as well. In our passage, we see the priority of hearing the words of Christ. And what's interesting is the next few verses in chapter 11 are going to deal with prayer. So it's as if the chapter 10 ends with the intake of God's word. And then chapter 11 begins with how we are to pray to God. When it comes to George Mueller as a person who is really uh, a model in many ways of this Devotion to Christ, both in hearing his word and prayer. Uh, I've been really impacted by a particular statement of Mueller's some years ago as he was talking about what he does for his morning devotions or his time in the Word of God. And he talks about how this was such a huge change in his life. And it helped me so tremendously to kind of rethink how I spend my time in the Word of God. Here's what he says somewhat of a longer quote. He says this: quote, "According to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. See to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you; the Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I diligently, or I, but I deliberately, repeat." It is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek, above all things, to have your souls truly happy in God Himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. This has been my firm and settled condition for the last five and thirty years. For the first four years after my conversion, I knew not its vast importance. But now, after much experience, I specially commend this point to the notice of my younger brethren and sisters in Christ. The secret of all true effectual service is joy in God, having experimental acquaintance and fellowship with God himself. That's good. That's good. From a man who pastored for 65 years, that's good. He he goes on uh, as he writes his biography, and he says, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. That is a good, uh, good word for us, a good goal for us to have. You know, sometimes we can get into the habit if we, if we make a habit of Bible reading, which we should, that we just kind of like go through the motions. And we're like, all right, read my chapter, done. I believe that happened. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and there's not really this engagement of um, with the Lord and finding joy in what we're seeing and savoring uh, before the Lord. Uh, at another time, Mueller would write this, quote, we should begin the thing in a right way. Aim after the right state of heart. Begin inwardly instead of outwardly. If otherwise, it will not last. We shall look back, or even get into a worse state than we were before. But oh, how different if joy in God leads us to any little act of self-denial! How gladly do we do it then? Notice he's saying if you're focused on being satisfied in God, finding joy in God as your primary goal each day from His Word then anything else God calls you to do, whether that's interactions with your kids, with your spouse, uh, with coworkers, with friends, there's just this sweet aroma that comes off of you. And you do acts of service with such joy. And it just makes them much more fulfilled because you're not doing it for you. You're doing it for the Lord. And you've been satisfied. And so now as you bump into others and as you have circumstances, what comes out of your heart is what was put into your heart by the word of God. And you think about your life like a a glass of water or a water bottle. If you bump that glass or that bottle, something will spill out. And you could ask the question, what made the water land on the ground? Well, you might say, well, someone hit it. You know, something bumped it. But more fundamentally, what is true is that, well, there was water in the container. And that's why water came out. If there was a different substance in the bottle or the cup, that substance would have come out. The, the pressure upon that was simply what caused that to come out it what was it caused what was already in there to come out and i would I would say that biblically speaking when we face difficult circumstances things bump us through the day and we might use different words to redefine what anger is they aggravate us they irritate us but I'm not angry you know and 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 that bumps us we have a response and if we've been filled and had joy in God what comes out is good things right the fruit of that and and, and if In our hearts, though, our selfishness and selfish ambition and our own desires and getting our way and our kingdom, then what comes out is some ungodly response. And so it's not the circumstance that caused you to sin. It is your heart. It was already in there. The circumstance was God's gift to you to show you what was happening in your heart. It was like the x-ray. It was like, oh, that came out? Well, that was what was inside. So then you don't just stop there and go, all right, moving on. No, you say, why is my heart inclined in this direction? And so this is why Mueller's advice is so incredibly practical. We're going to see Martha say some things to the Lord. You're like, Martha, you can't say that to God. (laughs) And why is that? Because her heart is responding in a certain way to a certain circumstance. It is not the circumstance's fault. Her heart, though, has latched on to certain things that she wants and she's not getting, and therefore, her response is the way that it is. Mary, on the other hand, is focused upon taking in the word, finding satisfaction in the Lord. And so this is not a passage about, you know, oh, there's some kind of Martha's in the world and there's Mary's in the world. No, other passages teach that people are different. Of course they do. That's not really the point of this passage, though. Nor is it a passage that's saying, you know, service is bad and taking in the word of God is good. It's not comparing the two like that. The issue really is, You ought not to be doing service to God if your heart is not satisfied in the Lord. Like, it's become service for you then. It's about the priority of having our hearts satisfied in Christ so that we are sustained for God honoring service. The story then is not pitting uh, Martha and Mary against each other in the sense of service versus studying the words of Jesus. Both are important, both are commanded but there is a priority. Tom Schreiner says, all service must flow out of one's relationship with the Lord. That all service must be rooted in the joy of knowing God as one's treasure and one's pleasure. Now, notice the context of this passage. Uh, If you haven't been with us in Luke, I'll catch you up. Uh, Luke is really focusing on the person and work of Jesus Christ, and he introduces us to Christ in chapters one to three, and it's the preparation for the life and ministry of Jesus as he's his genealogy, he's born, uh, and then you have the public ministry of Jesus in chapters four, really to chapters to chapter 19, um, and, and then the last chapters of the book, 20 and 24, really focus on the passion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and in this middle section where we find ourselves, Jesus has had a, a ministry in the north of Israel and Galilee region, that is concluded. Now he's moving his way to Jerusalem and he's headed towards the cross. He's already, he knows he's going to die. He's trying to tell his disciples that. And in this section, he's preparing them for what discipleship looks like, what following Christ looks like uh, in light of the cross of Christ. And so in this section of chapter 10, he, send out, he send, uh, sent out 72 disciples to go and minister. And so they're doing ministry, serving the Lord. Then, of course, we looked at the Good Samaritan. And there's a person who does extreme service to show how we fall so far short. And then now we come to Mary and Martha. And here, again, you see just a key uh, story here about the priority of focus in our service. Um, Kevin DeYoung comments about this passage, and he says, I believe God wants us to see that if we heal the sick and cast out demons and preach the gospel and show mercy and do justice and don't sit at the feet of Jesus, we've missed the one thing we truly need. The only thing more important than ministry is being ministered to. And so as we come to the conclusion of this like, long stretch of ministry, Jesus emphasizes the the need to be ministered to yourself so that you have something to give out. Something to give out. And so we see here in this passage the priority of properly ordered, or or the the need for properly ordered priorities in our lives. It's It's a lesson on discipleship. We could call it the disciple's highest priority. So what we want to do as we look through this is there's kind of three movements in the text. And so we want to see three lessons on the priorities of the disciple of Christ. Three lessons on the priorities of the disciple of Christ. Here's the first lesson. It's the submissive posture. The submissive posture of the disciple. Verses 38 and 39. Let's look again at these verses. Look at verse 38 and 39. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister named Mary, or called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching." Now, Luke doesn't tell us the location of where they are, but we, we, we're pretty certain that this is Bethany, which is about two miles from the temple, Temple Mount, on the east side of the Mount of Olives. And uh, we know that because we see them in other places. You know, you think of Lazarus. Remember the raising of Lazarus from the dead? That's in John chapter 11, and that's also Mary and Martha. That's the same Mary and Martha. They have a brother named Lazarus. And so uh, Luke may be pulling this out of chronological order to place this here because we already pointed out that all the way back in chapter Uh, all the way back, well, not that far, (laughs) chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus prays, Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things, gospel truth, from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children, and that we've observed that the lawyer, the the expert in the law, represents someone who is wise and understanding in their eyes, and now Mary serves as an example of little children, and not literal little children, but a, a, a way to talk about believers who trust the Lord, and look to the Lord. And so I think that's why Luke places it here, and he has a a, a certain agenda he's he's going for as he pulls this story in. So we're not exactly sure on the chronology of when this happened, but that's not really Luke's point. In fact, Luke doesn't tell us where this happened because he's just kind of giving it to us to fit into his point here on discipleship. Um, in addition, it's fascinating that the parable of the Good Samaritan did focus on the second part of the law love your neighbor as yourself, while this story seems to focus more on love the Lord your God with all your heart. Martha, as we introduce the story uh, and, and see them, is introduced first. And she welcomes Jesus in. Some think that she's the older sister, therefore, and owns this home. Um, no mention of husbands, so uh, she welcomes him in. She shows hospitality. We're also in a section that's dealing with people who show hospitality and don't show hospitality to Jesus. You think of the Samaritans, they don't welcome Jesus. Jesus sends out the 72, and and some will receive them into their homes and some will not. And so now here's someone else who receives them into their home. Then our attention moves from Martha to Mary, and that's where the text takes us. Martha has a sister, and that's the where the attention gets focused, and it's upon Mary. And here's what it says about Mary: it focuses on her posture before the Lord. First, she sat at the Lord's feet, and you might think, okay, well, she sat at the Lord's feet, great. Uh, But this is a term that's often used of disciples. It's a term of what a disciple does with their teacher. You have a teacher, a rabbi, and you sit at the feet and you listen, you learn, and so she is taking the posture here of a disciple. We can look at the other passages, Luke eight thirty-five, Acts 16, 14, 22, 3, speak in the same way of the disciple taking this posture. But this is fascinating because in this time, this is uh, extraordinary in some ways that you have a woman taking this posture. One commentator says this, quote, The extraordinary feature is that the pupil is a woman. Judaism did not forbid women to be instructed in the Torah, but it was very unusual for a rabbi to lower himself to this. And so you see Jesus breaking some uh, molds, if you will. And he wanted to minister to women. He wanted to see them educated in the scriptures and be uh, equipped and theologically accurate and to have a, a close relationship with him as well. We see that. We see a lot of uh, women ministering alongside Jesus. Of course, the women are there at the crucifixion. Luke highlights, maybe more than any other gospel, the focus of women in Jesus' ministry and uh, Jesus' concern for women in the gospel. So that's a unique focus of Luke's that he really highlights for us. And here's another example that we see of that. Notice also that it is at the Lord's feet that she is sitting, or it's at the Lord's feet that she's sitting, (laughs) should be the emphasis. The repetition of the word Lord is used three times in this short passage, verse 39, 40, 41. And Lord, of course, speaks to the Lord's authority. He's the master. And so we say the submissive posture. The posture of a disciple is one of submission to the Lord, to his word. They want to hear his word, and then they want to submit themselves under his word. We don't stand over the word and, and uh, you know, argue with the word of God. We sit under the word. You know, James says in James 1 that we ought to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's not really a passage about personal re- interactions with one another. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, in a context of how you receive the word of God. Be quick to hear the word of God, slow to talk back to God, and slow to anger at what you see revealed about yourself in the word of God. But be a doer of the word, James will later go on to say. And so we have a submissive posture as disciples. And notice what she's doing, though, in this posture. The text says she was listening to his teaching. Mary has a singular focus, one passion. She is consumed with hearing the teaching of Jesus. She is absorbed with the truth of Christ the disciples would say at a different time, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus asked them, do you want to go away? Like other people are leaving. They said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. In John seven forty six, it says, these officials who were sent to like take Jesus in, they couldn't and they questioned them. Like, why didn't you get him? The officer said of Jesus, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. Matthew 7, 28 and 29 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. Later in Luke 24, 32, we read the two men on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us as we as he talked to us on the road? While well, he opened to us the scriptures? As he opened the scriptures, Jesus explaining them, their hearts were just inflamed, they had such affection, their passion for for the Lord as they, as they saw the scriptures unfolded and they saw their meaning and their significance for their lives. And that certainly is true for us as disciples. As we sit under a submissive posture to the word of God, there are times when, uh, and we fight for this. Of course, you know we wish every day, every morning as we open our Bible, we got our coffee there and oh yeah, I'm ready to go. That it was always like this, but we fight to have this where we are seeing the scriptures for what they're saying and our hearts are inflamed and passionate for the Lord. What a privilege and what a pleasure it was for her to hear the words of Jesus, to have Jesus come in and and teach in their home. does the teaching of Jesus thrill you. Are you captivated by it? Are you at a point where you could say, man, I just cannot get enough of the word of God. I've tasted and I've seen and I have to have more. And this has a cumulative effect. it's like you have to taste it to, to know. You have to see it to want more. And so you, you see connections and you see the scriptures and you see their profundity and you see their, how satisfying they are because God is so satisfying. And that's what the scriptures are revealing to us. And you think, no one is like this man. No one is like the person of Christ. And you just, you see connections and then you want to see more. And then You see more, and your heart thrills. You praise God, and then you're drawn more in. And this is what happens for the disciple who has this posture of submission to the Word of God. They just become more and more captivated. So wherever you are in that spectrum, just press in more. Press in more. Everyone has to start at zero, (laughs) and and we just get a little bit more knowledge, and, and it's compounding in its effect. So if you're like, Hi, I just have a hard time reading the Bible, well, get some help. There's people who would love to give you resources that are gonna help you to know how to better read the Bible and, and, and you just keep going. And you know, the more you do it, the more you see, the more you are satisfied by what you see, the more it changes your life. This is the submissive posture of a disciple sitting to hear the word of God. The word of God becomes to us then our greatest treasure and our greatest delight, Turn, if you will, uh, to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. This is a great passage in the Psalms that highlights on the first section of the Psalm the world that God has made. And the second part focuses on the word of God revealed. And so there's some knowledge that we have from, about who God is in the creation. We know that God exists because of the creation. Um, we know that he's powerful Uh, We know that he's significant, but there's not a lot of things that you can know specifically about God from the creation alone. You need the word of God to reveal the character of God to you more specifically and the way of salvation. And so that second half of Psalm 19 begins in verse seven, and it highlights the word of God. And David writes this, verse seven, the law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The rules of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. And then here's what he says in light of that. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Here, the psalmist has found the word of God to be his greatest pleasure, his greatest delight, his greatest possession, because he has seen what it's done in his own life. Donald Whitney, in his book, Spiritual Disciplines, writes this about Bible intake. He says, no spiritual discipline is more important than the intake of God's word. Nothing can substitute for it. There simply is not healthy Christian life apart from a diet of the milk and meat of Scripture. Another psalm that's, I think, uh, appropriate here is Psalm 63. Psalm 63. And here, notice this, David's longing for God. And it's possible that David, in this context, is in the in the wilderness, a dry and desolate place where you would just be so thirsting for water. And he finds himself at En Gedi, these waterfalls that are kind of, you have to climb up them a little bit and you get to them and there's finally something to drink. And, and David is gonna say, as thirsty as I am physically, I want God more, more than my thirst to survive. I want to know God more. Listen to what he says. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Oh, the, the life of the disciple is a life of joy because it's a life rooted and, and sustained by the Word of God, by the Scriptures. So this is the submissive posture of a disciple, sitting as a disciple to hear the words of Christ. I think I laughed out loud when I was reading a commentary this week and. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, he, he's so good. You gotta read everything he's ever written. Uh, he's a great commentator. He entitled the title of this chapter as he commented on this text, uh, A Woman's Place Is... Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the point, of course, is you have Martha in the kitchen, so to speak, and you have Mary who's sitting at the feet of Jesus hearing his words. So he likes to be punchy in his title. So... Um, this is the first point we see, uh, the first observation we make, three lessons on the priorities of the disciple of Christ. Here's the submissive posture. But now we, we look at Martha a little bit more, and we see the subtle problem. This is our second point, the subtle problem. Look at verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, you, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now Martha is doing a good thing. In fact, the Bible commands that we serve. She is serving. Yet Martha, as we will see, has ceased serving for the Lord and is, it has become about her. Now, What is the subtle problem with Martha? Well, it is this word, distracted. She was distracted. The term means to be pulled away something, to be pulled away from something. Now this distraction, this subtle problem is subtle because it can happen to you without you realizing it. Think about like a, um, a boat tied to a dock and it's just tied by one rope and just imagine if that rope was not tied well and it just kind of loosened off and, and just fell into the water And overnight, someone, you know, you're you're sleeping on that boat, and overnight, just the water just kind of slowly, subtly takes you. You're fast asleep, and all of a sudden, you wake up, and you're out in the middle of the water. How did I get here? And it's just subtle, just like, "Mm," just drifting you out there. And that's the subtle danger of this distraction. (coughs) It's subtle because it can happen to you without you realizing it. Martha has become blinded to her condition. She can no longer evaluate herself clearly, and she begins to have self-pity, you know, I was just talking to someone in the break after Sunday school about pride and sometimes we think like, I- I'm just not really a prideful person. I don't, I kind of uh, keep to myself. I don't talk about myself that much. I don't, and, uh, but there's a reverse pride. It's like a backdoor pride and it's called self-pity. It's when we, we do think about ourselves a lot uh, and we're very concerned, but maybe it just doesn't manifest itself in the braggadocious kind of pride that we often see maybe on TV. Uh, but that self-pity is just as hated by God we would be all about ourselves. And she has begun to be self-focused. Martha is doing something quite commendable. She's serving, but she has made it about herself. This passage is not saying that the only thing we should do is sit and study the word of God all day, every day. No, there's a time and place for that. We have to have other responsibilities. Rather, it is giving us the priority of listening to and enjoying the words of Jesus Martha is distracted from the best thing by a good thing. Even in her pursuit of something good, she has neglected what is best. And this has led her to an attitude that is warped. One commentator said this, don't get Martha wrong. She didn't think Mary should never listen to Jesus' teaching. She didn't think Jesus should refrain from teaching in her home. She's no secular humanist. She simply believes there are times when listening to the word of Jesus should take second place to the pressing needs of the moment. End quote. Ouch. <laughs> Voddie Bacham sometimes says, uh, if you can't say amen, say ouch. You know? <laughs> That's an ouch statement. It's like, wow, yeah, I think I've had that mentality. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it can become a God thing, an idolatrous thing. The problem was Martha's Martha's heart, not her circumstances, as we said earlier. The circumstances, and we have to think about it this way, they were a gift to her to reveal what was really going on in her heart, what had come to rule her heart, to dominate her heart. Here's the reality. The Bible describes really mission control center for you and I as our heart. The heart is using the Bible for our thinking. It's using the Bi- in the Bible for our affections. It's using the Bible for our volition, our acting. We tend to think with the heart, like Valentine's, Day, it's like just your affections, your emotions. But but it's really used for all those things. It's your thinking. It's you think in your heart. You you feel in your heart. You act in your heart. Out of your heart, rather. Um, And you have to understand that biblically, the way the Bible describes our heart is that our heart is a worship center. We are always worshiping, no matter what. In every moment of every day, you are worshiping. The question is, what are you worshiping? What is the object of your worship? And even as Christians, there are times when subtly we make something an idol that we set up in our heart. Now, you may think of an idol as like something in another country that's like a little statue that someone bows down to, but that is true that those are idols as well. But even in ancient times, it wasn't just the physical object that they were all about. It was what they believed that physical object could give them. Power, pleasure, um, prosperity, you know, money or, or productive plants and uh, uh, vegetables and, and, and crops and whatnot. And so it was what was behind that? And even today for us, as we, we think about idolatry, idolatry in our heart is, is a worship problem. Sin is always a worship problem. It's a problem of unbelief. And so our circumstances and how we respond to our circumstances are a gift because it shows us in that moment, in that snapshot, what were we worshiping in that moment? Let me take you to James chapter 4. I think this will serve you well. This should be a well worn place in your Bible, especially if you're a parent, <laughs> especially if you're married, especially if you're a human being. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is so good. James chapter 4, verses 1 and following. James says this What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Man, what a relevant text. I mean, don't you wonder this sometimes? You, have you had a conflict this week? Did you have a little words with someone this week? What caused that? James says this, is it not this, that your passions, it's another word for desires, are at work or are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that your that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He goes on there, uh, of course, to give us a more practical uh, implementation. But notice what he's saying here: when you have a quarrel and a fight, the main issue is you have unmet expectations. You have some desire in your heart, some longing that you want to see met, and somehow this other person or this circumstance has gotten in the way of you getting what you want. And so therefore, you have some kind of manifestation of a conflict, of a quarrel. That's what James is saying here. And and he's saying you have these, these, and you'll go, and he's not saying you will murder someone every time. He's saying that is the extent, that's the farthest extent you'll go to. You will do anything necessary to get your way, to get what you want. And then he says like, you pray about it, but that's not good because you're not praying for the right things. You're praying selfishly. And so it's not according to God's will, and so you don't receive it. Just because someone's praying about a situation, you have to ask them, what are you praying about? I'm praying that he just kills them. You know, it's like, takes them out. And You're like, well, no, nah, I don't think this is a good thing. This is not a good prayer. You know, it's like, uh, so So here he's showing us the issue. Now, Paul Tripp is really helpful here. He kind of walks us through a, a progression that tends to happen. And this progression happens, like, in a split-second decision. So it's good to, like, just slow this this, this down and see how it works. And I think you'll, you'll find this is pretty relevant. It starts with a desire, something that I want. And, and that can be a neutral thing. It could be a good thing. Like, I want respect for my, my wife, right? <laughs> That's a good thing, right? But it's a want, it's a desire. And then this can suddenly shift into a demand. So it moves from I want, a desire, to I must. I must have this thing. And you begin to demand. Then it can move quickly to a need that we perceive. I will. I will have this. I will have this thing. Then it can move to an expectation of that person. You should do this. And then it can move to disappointment. You didn't do this, which then moves to punishment. Because you didn't, I will do this to you. Now, that happens very rapidly. It's hard to see it all play out, but essentially that's what's happening in the heart that is self-focused. It quickly shifts a want that may be neutral, may be good, and it quickly idolizes it and makes it so important that you move down this, this kind of trajectory, and then you're in a fight and a quarrel. That's what James is saying. Man, all right, just pause for a second and realize you didn't just read the Bible, the Bible just read you. (laughs) I mean, this is incredible. I mean, this pinpoints it on issues that we face every day. We all face this. And so how do I know when something has captured my heart in an idolatrous way? How do I know when that happened? Here's some questions you can ask. I've derived these from others who've hurt me with these, (laughs) and so I'm going to help you with them. Uh, Here are some good diagnostic questions. Am I willing to sin in order to get this thing I want? Am I willing to sin in order to get this thing? It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's good. Or, I mean, obviously, it's sinful. It's an idol if it's actually sin, right? Is it actually a bad thing? You think about desires? You have desires that go wrong in direction and desires that go wrong in degree. A desire that goes wrong in direction is a desire that you should never want. It is off limits all the time, Right? we can get lots of examples. A desire of degree that's gone wrong is a desire that may be a good thing, but you want it too much. It's become idolatrous. And so am I willing to sin to get this thing that I want? Whatever it is. Secondly, am I willing to sin if I don't get what I want? So you want this thing so much, but someone prevents you, or circumstances prevents you. Are you willing to sin either in action or attitude, in your heart, in your words? If so, that thing has become idolatrous. Number three, am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose this thing? If I think I'm going to lose this thing, will I sin to protect it? Now, here's the thing. If you're willing to sin to protect this thing, that thing has become your God. It has become your functional idol in that moment. And finally, do I run to it as a refuge instead of God? Do I run to this thing as a refuge instead of God? Oh, preacher, you've gone from preaching to meddling. (laughs) Think about just what is it in your life that you go to as a refuge. This is, this is where you go, and you're just you might say in different ways. I'm just stressed out. I just need to go here to soothe myself. That may be your functional God in that moment. So, are your pursuits pulling you away from what is most important? Are they overburdening you? Are they distracting you? She is not distracted with much sinning, but much serving. She's not distracted by sinful pursuits, but serving others. But they are not the best pursuits in this context. How easy it is for us to fill our calendars with many good extracurriculars and yet sacrifice the good portion. And so evaluate your calendar and ask, do my good pursuits keep me from consistent use of the means of grace? Taking the word of God in, praying, being with God's people. To be very practical and pointed, If there are good and lawful pursuits that God allows for you to have in your life that are keeping you from regular time studying God's word and praying, then your priorities are wrong. If there are good and lawful pursuits in your life that are keeping you from weekly worship on Sunday, then those priorities are wrong. That's what Jesus is saying. Kevin DeYoung asked this convicting question. He says, if someone recorded your life for a week and then showed it to a group of strangers, what would they guess is the good portion in your life? what would they conclude is the one thing you must get done every day? Folding the laundry, cleaning the house, catching up on emails, posting to Facebook, mowing the lawn, watching the game? He says, I know you have things to do. I have plenty to do myself. But out of all the concerns in our lives, can we honestly say and show that sitting at the feet of Jesus is the one thing that is necessary? And you're like, move on, Robert, move to the next point. Let me give it a little bit more. Let me press it further. What does your spouse think you prioritize most in life? What do your kids think you prioritize most in your life? What do your grandkids think you prioritize most in your life? What do your parents think you prioritize most in your life? Fill in the blank. I will skip my daily Bible reading for blank. I will skip prayer to God for blank. I will skip church this Sunday for blank. When you put it in those terms, it's like, those reasons don't seem as important anymore. And some things seem like necessities for life when they are not. Martha has a task before her that seems like a necessity. She wants to serve. She wants to do a good thing. This is commanded in scripture, but it's not compare, it's not as important compared to hearing the words of Jesus. This moment, this context demands hearing from the words of Jesus. And once again, we are not saying, this is all you do ever, right? We have these other responsibilities, and we can do these other things. But the issue is priority. Priority. The greatest danger and biggest point of this passage is that you would become distracted from devotion to Christ while doing ministry for the Lord. Like, this is the last thing we want, to be trying to serve Christ on an empty tank. Serving Christ without actually being satisfied. christ That's a great witness. Don't you want to be a Christian just like me? So great. So good to have your sins forgiven. It's like, what is that? That's a bad advertisement. No, but the person who's really filled up, really satisfied in the word of God, and they believe it, and they're like talking to people about it, and that's a good advert. Paul Tripp, in his book *Dangerous Calling*, writes this. He says, "I am more and more convinced that what gives a ministry its motivations—that preser- um, what gives a ministry its motivations, preserving humility, joy, tenderness, passion, and grace—is the devotional life of the one doing ministry. When I daily admit how needy I am, daily meditate on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and daily feed on the restorative wisdom of this Word, I am propelled to share with others the grace that I am daily receiving." at the hands of my Savior, end quote. Mm. This is intentional. This is why we call them devotions, right? Uh, because they're, it's a discipline. This is why we call them spiritual disciplines, because they take discipline to pursue. And so beware of the danger of subtle distraction. Subtle distraction, good things, lawful things, taking, awa- ta- taking us away from the main thing. Finally, our third point is the supreme priority. The supreme priority. Look at verses 41 and 42. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Martha has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, here's what you have to see. Notice the tenderness of Jesus here. Notice his compassion he says, Martha, he says it twice, Martha, Martha, we need this. We, after, after what you just went through, you need to hear this, right? I mean, w- w- we've all just been convicted. I got convicted all week, okay? So, <laughs> and here he's so gracious. Now, here's what you need to see. It, it's not just like, okay, beat me up, and then I'm gonna feel bad, and I'm just gonna try harder and work harder. What you really need to see is why you need this. Right? somebody just have to, like, I'm not just trying to guilt trip you. No, it's like, Jesus wants her to see, listen, this is for the benefit of your soul. This is for the joy of your life. I want you to see how good this is. Let me show you what you are missing. Martha, would you rather have anxiety and troubles, Martha? You are troubled and anxious about many things. Let me tell you, what you need, Martha. So don't get mad at Jesus. Don't get mad at the Bible if you're feeling conviction over these things in some area of your life. But think, Lord, you're so good to reveal this imbalance in my life because this is the good portion. I mean, it really comes down to this. You either believe that it is the good portion or you don't believe it's the good portion. You either believe the word of God in this area or you don't. And so he says to her, he wants to restore her And that's how we should think about talking to people about their their problems that they face with the Word of God. This tenderness, this this care, this compassion. You have undue concern, Martha. Surely you don't want to live like this. Surely you don't want to continue this way with a heart like this. And so he says, Martha, you've neglected the one thing necessary. You're burdened and troubled because you've neglected the main thing. Verse 41 ends with the words many things. Verse 42 begins with the word one thing. It's like, in Greek, it's like the many things, one thing. And it just puts them right next to each other. Earl Ellis in his commentary on Luke says, Jesus rebukes Martha for diverting Mary from his word to less essential tasks. The issue is not two kinds of Christian service, but religious busyness which distracts the Christian preacher or layman from the word of Christ upon which all effective service rests. One writer said this, true service for Christ does not consist in what we in our busyness can give Jesus been receiving what he delights to give us, namely his word. Uh, this is what separates true Christian belief from every other religion. Every other religion is this God wants to get from you. He, he's a needy God. Every other God that is not a God is a made-up God. Every other religion is a made-up religion. It's you know it's man's made, man-made religion, and it's really it makes a God into its own image. And so these gods are needy because man is needy. Man needs stuff to survive. And so it's like, serve me, give to me because I'm so needy. It's like Jesus just waiting for you, you know, and he won't be satisfied today if you don't have your devotions. No, that's not at all the case. The issue in Christianity is God doesn't need anything from you, but he lives to give to you. He lives to satisfy you. And so he is a fountain of joy and blessing. And so he's welcoming you to enjoy him. He won't be diminished if you don't read your Bible today. You will be. And so that's the issue. He's saying, Martha, Martha, you're so concerned about all these things. You've neglected the one main thing. If you're going to be a disciple of Christ, then you must feed your soul on the words of Christ. If you're going to be able to serve in any way that honors Christ, Jerry Ragg, a pastor in Jupiter, Florida, he had a great quote on this. He says, quote, unrivaled devotion to Christ is life's highest priority. Therefore, undistracted learning from his word is your highest good. We, we could see this in other places. Matthew 6, 33, after Jesus talks about all these anxieties that you have, and you're worried about all these things, and he finally gets down to, and he's talking about how God cares for you, don't worry about tomorrow, and then he finally says this, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Here's one of the cures for anxiety of many in scripture. Listen, keep the main thing the main thing. You'll be satisfied in your heart. Luke 9:35 at the mount of transfiguration a voice came out of the cloud saying this is my son my chosen one listen to him listen to him when you make Christ your highest priority then you become the best servant and here's where Jesus now entices Martha and you by extension to realign your priorities Jesus says to Martha Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her the good portion here is likely a play on words Like Martha might be actually making an actual meal and Jesus is saying she's chosen, Mary has chosen the better portion, the meal for her soul. Makes us think of Deuteronomy 8 and Luke 4. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. J.C. Rouse said about this good portion, he said it is good in sickness and in health. Good in youth and age, good in adversity and good in prosperity, good in life and good in death, good in time and good in eternity. It's all good, all the time. It is the portion of the believer. This is all over the scriptures, especially in the first testament here in Job 23, 12. I have not departed from the commandment of his his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth, more than my portion of food. Psalm 16, Psalm 16, verse five, David says, Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. In other words, he's satisfied with God's providence in determining the times and places for him. Psalm 27, verse four. One thing have I asked of Yahweh, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. I want to be satisfied with God. As the psalmist in Psalm 73 looks at the world and sees, man, so many wicked people get away with all kinds of stuff and how is this, I mean, the righteous, they're suffering. And then he finally ends this way and he says in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We could go on and on. And notice the great thing about this portion, this satisfying, nourishing portion, is it will never be taken away from you. It will never be taken away from you. Let me say this, everything else in your life will be taken away from you. Everything. Consider all those pursuits that you have that will be taken away and end one day. What sense does it make to devote the lion's share of your energy to those things and neglect the one thing that is necessary and that will never be taken away? Christ to the believer is better than anything that life could give or anything that death could take away. And death will take away everything except your relationship to Christ. That will last forever Dear Christian, don't miss out on that which is truly life, and if you don't know Christ, don't miss out on that which is truly life. Revelation chapter 2, here's a case study in a church where this happened. Martha's a case study in an individual that this seemed to happen in. Here's a church that this happened to, the church of Ephesus. Revelation 2 verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus says to this church, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary I mean, this is good. I mean, like, man, you guys are good. You guys have a lot going for you. But then he says, but. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yeah, you have, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Notice how he just brackets it. He's so, even here he's so compassionate. He says, you got so many good things but you've missed the main thing and then so many good things on the other end. And he's saying, just get back to that. Do the works you did at first. That initial joy, passion, pursuits, go back there. If you are here and you've never known the joy of a relationship with Jesus, I'd invite you today to taste and see the Lord is good. He's the living water that satisfies. He's the bread of life that nourishes. Trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. You think, what does all this mean? What, what do you mean? Well, the reality is God made you. He made you in his image. He made all of us to be worshipers. And he's the king. But the problem is we love ourselves. Because of Adam's sin, we are committed to our own self and worshiping ourselves. We, sin is, in essence, self-sovereignty. It's saying, I want to do what I want to do, God, not what you want to do. I'll do what you want to do if it's convenient for me. But otherwise, it's about me, God. And that is cosmic treason. And yet, despite God being a good God and he should punish us for our sin, the Lord Jesus has come, who is truly God and truly man, He lived a perfect life. He always obeyed, doing what we cannot do. And even as we look at these things, we're like, man, I fall short of that. Exactly you do. Of course, none of us have arrived here. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need the gospel. We need Christ to forgive us of our sins because he died as a substitute in the place of sinners like you and me. And he conquered death and rose again. And he calls us to identify our sin, to sorrow over our sin, to turn away from our sin, And to then receive him as our only hope to be forgiven and to have a right relationship with God. And he will reign on the earth, he will be king and we will reign with him having been rightly reconciled to him. So that's what I mean by trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, for a right standing with God. And you will receive from him such joy, such peace because your sins will be forgiven. That's your main issue and it will never be taken away from you. Nothing can take away that relationship. For those of us who do know the Lord, you know it takes careful and deliberate action to make this a priority in your life. And so just ask yourself, I mean, this is just you and the Lord, what do you need to do differently in your life starting this week? How are you going to do it? How are you going to prioritize getting your soul happy in the Lord this week? Don't become a professional sermon listener. I mean, Robert really socked us today. And then you just go and do the same things. No, see, Lord, I really want to know you more. I want to have you reveal to my heart where I need to grow and change from this message. When we were down at this conference in Florida, someone gave me, uh, our host gave, us, gave me this book called The Christian Home by Paul Shirley, a uh, pastor in in Delaware. And it was, it's so good. I mean, just like it's short, which is good. And then it's so good on the family, being a godly husband, being a godly wife, parenting kids. Here's what he says about priorities in the home. And he gives these helpful diagnostic questions for our priorities. He says this, what is vital to family life at this stage in life? Where do we exert the most energy and spend the most resources, time and money, etc.? Do the priorities of our household match the emphasis of the New Testament? Do the priorities of our household emphasize eternal matters and the means of grace? How can I model the life patterns I want my kids to follow when they are adults? Oh, these are so good. I'm like, oh man. It's such a helpful book. I commend it to you. The fuel that supplies God-honoring ministry is faith-filled feeding on the words of God. Psalm 138, verse two. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. So let us be those who listen and enjoy and delight in that word and have souls that are happy in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tremendously, Lord, for the word of God, the the 66 books that give us perspective on where we came from. They give us perspective on where the world is headed. They give us perspective on how we can know anything and know what we know for certain. They give us perspective on how we are to live then. They give us perspective and they point us to eternal life, what our problem is, sin, what the solution is, Christ, how we can experience forgiveness, repentance, and faith. And we thank you. But we thank you for the word of God, the capital W word, the Lord Jesus Christ, for his perfect life, for his death, his resurrection. How satisfying, Lord, to our souls it is to know him. And may we know him more and more increasingly. Lord, may we be vigilant to make him a priority in our lives. And it will slot everything else into place for our lives. Lord, as you bring conviction, bring comfort as well and bring a motivation that is a gospel-driven motivation, not from guilt, but from gratitude for all that you are for us and do for us. We thank you, you're a God that, that doesn't demand because you are needy, but that you delight to give because you are all-sufficient. Pray these things in Jesus' name, for his glory, amen. Let us respond in